Today's episode is sponsored by Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash Gilbert and using promo code Gilbert. Hey, you like making great money, right? You sound like Chico Marx. Yeah. When you say, hey, you like a great money. Hey, eh? boss. Well, you got to get the book with uh, horses in it. <laughs> and then you get the book with the riders. <laughs> You're picking a subpar Marx Brothers movie. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, we all like making good money, Gil. What's yes. your point? Oh, I, I have none. Okay. Okay. Here's a really cool opportunity I had to share with you. Uh-huh. Driving with Uber. Uber's that popular smartphone app that connects riders with drivers. Ah, uh, yes. I take an Uber a bunch. I love them, and in chatting with the different drivers, some of them have really interesting stories to uh, say as to why they drive with Uber. Now, that's unusual because you usually don't like it when people, yeah, t- when yeah, people talk I to you. I usually go, shut up, I'm in show business, <laughs> and I'm above you. <laughs> no. They love being their own boss. Yeah, the- I, I, I love being my own boss. Then I can make a joke that offends me and fire myself. Absolutely. And cut out the middleman. <laughs> <laughs> and that still may happen. Uh, also, I hear they make great money. They do. Uh, they do. It's easy to start. All you need is a car and a license. Now, you and, have one of those things. Now, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's one of them around here. I don't know what. And driving with Uber is, is great if you need flexibility. Or if you're a parent like you are. Yes. Yeah, because <laughs> you work it around the family schedule and stuff. Or students. Right, that's right. They can make money in between classes. It's true. Now's the prime time to cash in driving with Uber people. You'll thank me. You'll thank Gilbert for telling you guys how to get paid every week. And Gilbert himself could be getting into your car. In fact, he probably will be because he doesn't have a license. Uh, Yes, yes. (laughs) I could be getting in your car. I, I don't know if that's a drawback. Maybe I should say, hey, I promise I won't get into your car. <laughs> That's even better. And then more people will sign That's up. even more appealing. Yes. Now, you've got a car and you've got a license. Not you, Gil, but the people I'm yes. talking to. Put them both to work for you and start earning serious life-changing money today. You sign up to drive with Uber. Visit drivewithuber.com. That's drivewithuber.com. Gil, I want to talk to you about Casper. Well, I'm not going to listen to you. Of course. To you, and I don't mean the cartoon ghost. Oh. And, and much to your disappointment, <laughs> I don't mean Casper Gutman from the Maltese Falcon. You are the character, sir. <laughs> I enjoy speaking to a man who enjoys to speak. And speaking is something you can do judiciously. Brilliant. I love it. Uh, I'm talking about Casper, the online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the mattress industry, Gil, forces consumers into paying notoriously high markups. But Casper 
is actually revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms, and then they pass the savings directly to the consumer. Casper mattresses provide resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. I don't know if you knew that. Casper's mattress is one of a kind. It's a new hybrid mattress. It combines premium latex foam with memory foam. It's kind of like the hybrid of you being a, a mediocre comedian and a mediocre actor. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> I, 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 well, with me, I do them both badly. Yeah. And it's a risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days you have to decide with free delivery and painless returns. It's true. They sent us a, a mattress. We should point out they were very uh, they were very generous to us. The yes. Casper company and the mattresses are made in America. Here's the prices because you know when you go buy mattresses, it's like buying cars. Yeah, you right. You have to deal with like uh, it's get sleazy. It's true. Yeah, but here it's five hundred dollars for a twin size mattress. Only nine hundred and fifty for. King size for a king size match. Very affordable. And and compare that to the industry averages, and that's an outstanding price point. It's true. And they have just the right sink and just the right bounce because of the again the two technologies, the latex foam and the memory foam. So get fifty dollars toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper. Dot com slash Gilbert and using promo code Gilbert, terms and conditions apply. Gil, you're a celebrity. You're a famous person. You need protection. Yes, yes, because a lot of people uh, see my show and <laughs> want me dead afterwards. <laughs> Including some collaborators. Yes. <laughs> well... <laughs> I want to tell you about a security camera that's going to change your life, Foscam. Now, if you're tired of not knowing what's happening when you're not around, you get the Foscam C1. Uh, it's an HD 720p indoor Wi-Fi security camera. Now, with the Foscam C1, Gil, you can view the video stream from your computer, your tablet, your mobile phone through their free app, which is available on the Google Play Store and the iTunes App Store. Well, you can't do any of those things. No, because, but, no. But well, we're talking to somebody who understands yeah, basic but technology. Like a three-year-old yes. would have to explain if it. A three-year-old me. needs personal security. And they're like small and versatile with a super wide viewing angle. That's true. With HD 720, as we said, 720p video feed resolution. Um, also, up to 26 feet of night vision. Motion detection alerts go right to your phone via text or email, so Dara could see them and alert you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, optional cloud service, Gil, for secure storage of your recordings off-site, two-way audio, and a 60-second setup. It's very easy to set this camera up. It's like, basically, my kids would have to operate it and tell me if someone's uh, coming after What me. are children yes. for? <laughs> The Foscam C1 security camera is $69.99, and you can get $10 off per camera if you use the code GILCAST, G-I-L-C-A-S-T-1. Your purchase will also get you a lifetime support and 30-day money-back guarantee. 
and a one-year warranty on every purchase. It's a great deal. Just go to www.foscam.us slash C1, and you'll be linked to the C1 Amazon page, where you can use the code GILCAST. That code is G-I-L-C-A-S-T-1, and get $10 off each C1 that you buy. That's Foscam, F-O-S-C-A-M dot U-S slash the letter C and the number one. Foscam, watch what you love anywhere. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. Our guest this week is a historian journalist, author, TV host, and one of the most respected film critics of our time. His books include The Disney Films of Mice and Magic, The Great Movie Comedians, The Best 151 Movies You've Never Seen, and of course, Leonard Moulton's Movie Guide, a best-selling and invaluable resource since it was published in 1969. His articles and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, The Village Voice, Playboy, American Film, TV Guide, and Variety at since 1982. He's been the movie reviewer for the long-running show Entertainment Tonight. Please welcome a man who panned both Problem Child and Problem Child 2, <laughs> Leonard Moulton. Now, well, thank you. Now, welcome, thank you. Welcome, that, is, that, that is a unique introduction. I've been introduced many times, <laughs> but that's the first time that the movie Problem Child has ever entered into the introduction. <laughs> yes. And, and rightly now, so, by the now, way. Now, bad reviews. So that leads me to my first question. Now, also, I have to correct you because I did have a, an incredible 30-year run on Entertainment Tonight, but I'm no longer on Entertainment Tonight. Oh, okay. All right, we'll edit that out. But however, it was <laughs> while I was working at Entertainment Tonight that I met a very nice young woman named Debbie Alexander, whose husband, Scott, co-wrote Problem yes. Child. Uh, yes. He's been on the show. And Scott and his partner Larry and I have been friends for many years. They're great guys. In spite of my review of Problem Child. <laughs> yes. And so because of your Problem Child review, that leads us to my first question. Uh-oh. Would you please go fuck yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, here, you know, herein lies the problem. Yes, <laughs> and it is a problem. I grew up. I grew up in, in the New York area. I grew up. I was born in Manhattan. I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. I've spent most of my adolescence, you know, in and around New York, and haunting all the revival theaters at the time and the Museum of Modern Art. Going to the memorabilia shops, uh, being part of the the underground film societies of the day, all of that. And then I, out of the blue, and it really was out of the blue, I got this job uh, as a movie critic on a brand-new TV show called Entertainment Tonight. And at first, I commuted from New York to L.A. I did that for a year and a half. And, and then ultimately, I moved out here with my wife. And E.T. moved physically to the Paramount Studio lot. 
So now not only was I a movie critic living in Hollywood in the midst of the movie industry, I was even at a movie studio. <laughs> and this caused, you know, some occasional problems and conflicts. Not as many as I anticipated. But one of the things I learned early on was that I really couldn't be friendly with people who made movies. I had to keep an arm's length because nobody likes to be criticized, and that includes me. Interesting. And, and so, you know, you, you can't be palsy with somebody that, you know, you're going to say, you know, something negative about. It just doesn't work. Now, you, were, you said in an interview, when you see someone in a horrible movie and then you meet them, the actor or director, that there are these things, you have to say something, right. and that there are these things you say when you're meeting someone whose movie you hated. Well, I've collected these phrases, Gilbert, over the years. The problem is I never have the nerve to actually use them. But the things that you can say is, are things like, nobody enjoyed it any more than I did. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> or, I can't tell you how much I liked it. <laughs> so because, uh, you, because you had to Pam the, the, the problem child. There's, films, one, you... there's one that you do with a little punch on the arm. You say, you've done it again. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> but the truth is, when I run smack into somebody, like after a screening, uh, uh, and, and I'm staring them in the face, and I know them, and they know me, uh, I thump I I, I her, and I get tongue-tied, and the best that I can come up with is, Congratulations on your film. That's funny. Now, ah. the, the, now, the truth is, making a film is a big deal, right? It's, you know, it is a big deal to get a movie made. So you've made a movie. Congratulations. Now, how they want to interpret it is up to them. Well, it's like they always say uh, it takes as much work to make a bad movie yeah, as sure. a good of course. movie. Sure. Now, here's something. Nothing drives me crazier then when I see a movie that I hate, and then I read all the reviews, and every single reviewer loves it. Have you been in that position a bunch of times where you hated a movie? I've been, in, I've been on both sides of that fence. I've been the only one or seemingly uh, the only one who disliked a movie everybody likes. And conversely, I've been... Uh, the champion of a film that nobody seems to like. That's happened many times, too. Now, do you remember offhand the films you hated that got great reviews? Well, hated is too strong a word in this case. But, I mean, for instance, I was not, just as a for instance, I, I didn't like Foxcatcher last year. Foxcatcher left me cold. I could respect it and admire it. Steve Carell certainly did a good job. Uh, everybody in it is good. Mark Ruffalo, I mean, they're all, uh, Channing Tatum, they're all good in it. It's not the actor's fault. But I, it, the film just didn't play for me. It didn't work for me. And uh, yet it was, of course, a, you know, very, very highly praised and uh, 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 an awards contender. Uh, and so sometimes, listen, it's just an opinion. As I say over and over again to, to, to nobody's... Uh, uh, nobody's open ears, apparently, because no one ever seems to pay attention. It's just an opinion. And, you know, also I, I, I wonder about... Now, how, what has happened now? Like, I remember years ago, before the Internet, 
We had our movie reviewers. Wait a minute. Co- there was a time before the Internet? Yeah. <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah. We had our movie reviewers, our columnists, our writers, and that those were the ones you went to. Right. And now every single person in the world is a movie reviewer and a columnist. Yeah, and a musician, and yes. a filmmaker, and an artist, and a comedian, and a voiceover person. Yeah. It's it's the uh, it's the age of the amateur. Now now you know there are a lot of very talented people out there, and and some of them, and the the line is completely blurred now between amateur and professional. I don't even know how you determine one from the other, uh, in, in many ways. But uh, you're right. I mean, there used to be people that you you relied on in a, in a certain way, and, and now uh, you know all all bets are off. It's why a lot of my colleagues are losing their jobs. Who did you rely upon, uh, Leonard? Yourself in those days, Pauline Kael, Andrew Saris, those type of people. Well, I, I read mean, them. Mm-hmm. I, I I I tried never to rely on anybody in the sense. Yeah, I'm I'm not a typical reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm I'm also going to be writing a review and giving my opinion. So I would never read anybody ahead of time. And I didn't turn to critics for the reason that many people do, to get an opinion. If I'm reading a review, it's after I've seen the movie, and what I'm looking for is uh, a thoughtful, interesting, provocative, good piece of writing. I, I, if, if it's a film that I didn't quite get, maybe the reviewer helps explain it to me. Or perhaps they illuminate something that uh, I didn't fully understand, or they help me appreciate it more. There are all sorts of things I can derive from a really good review. But I'm not looking for just a thumb up or a thumb down. Sure. And, and speaking of that situation you just spoke about where you, you didn't have the right words or you were, you were looking for something <laughs> to say, wasn't there a Kevin Costner story? Well, that was uh, that was one of the most awkward moments of my of my, of my professional <laughs> life. I got, when I was working for ET, I got a call one day. Uh, hey, uh, tomorrow afternoon you're going to go see the new Kevin Costner movie. They're having a special uh, sneak screening at Warner Brothers in Burbank, and you'll see the film at one o'clock, and then you'll immediately go to Kevin's office on the lot and interview him. Okay, fine. <laughs> the film is called The Postman. Now, I knew nothing about it, which is the way I like to see movies. I don't like to know anything ahead yeah, of time. Yeah, you don't like trailers and all that stuff. You no, don't, I don't. Yeah. I try to avoid them. So, so okay, fine. So I, I show up at Warner Brothers in their biggest theater, a 500-seat theater on the studio lot. And uh, there's maybe a dozen people scattered around the, the, this theater. And I find an isolated spot by myself. And Kevin is introducing the movie. And he waves hello to me and welcomes everybody in and says, I I put my heart and soul into this movie. I really hope you like it. Here it is. Okay, so the movie begins. And it's a big epic scale film, you know, set in the West and all this. And it goes on and on and on (laughs) and on. I actually got to a point, I mean, this, this is very, very rare for me, but I think by the third hour... I was actually muttering, audibly muttering to myself. I was saying, oh, jeez. Oh, please. Oh, jeez. Oh, it, was, it, was it was pretty excruciating. So now picture this. All right, the film's over now. 
And I stay and watch the credits. The film isn't over for me until I've been threatened with civil and criminal prosecution. <laughs> That's when the film is over, not a moment earlier. I, I, I go to the men's room. It had been three hours, after all. I go to the men's room, and then I walk maybe 100 yards to an office that Kevin Costner has on the Warner Brothers lot where the E.T. crew is already set up. They've got two cameras. The lighting is all set, and there's Kevin. Hi, nice to see you. How you doing? I sit down. Now, of course, all I'm praying, praying is that he's not going to say, how did you like the movie? Because <laughs> I've been in this situation before, and many, many, many actors and even filmmakers are smart enough not to ask that question. Uh, at that moment, I'm not wearing my critic hat. I'm wearing my interviewer hat, right? So I'm there to do an interview with him. How'd the movie come about? What was the inspiration? You know, what was it like having to direct yourself? All those things. And in the middle of, and, and, and so we're going along and we're having an okay conversation. And I, I'd interviewed him before and all that. So, so we're, we're getting along fine. And in the middle of it, he says, and you know, he says, I, you know, I, I like big movies. I like big epic movies. Because in my home theater, I got posters on the wall for films like Ben-Hur and How the West Was Won, big movies. He says, and, you know, and that's the kind of thing I was trying to emulate here. And he says, and, um, and I, hope, I hope it worked for you. And I say, in one of my rare moments of inspiration, I say, well, it looked great on that big screen. And he, he and he bit. He said, "Exactly, exactly. That's an idea." Nice save. Now, to to be to be fair, I ran into him about six months later, and by this time, of course, the film had been panned and you know pilloried by everybody. So it's not like I was a maverick opinion. Sure, it's a post-apocalyptic you know, anyway. drama, right? I mean, I've never seen it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, whatever. It's um. Uh, I've tried to forget it, but, uh, 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 but he saw me and he, and he was not unfriendly. And he said, you know, I still like that movie. <laughs> I said, well, you put a lot into it. I understand that, you know, so he didn't, he didn't bear a grudge. Now, I think the last time we worked together, unless I'm totally uh, in a daze now, I think it's when they were releasing the Aladdin DVD. It was an Aladdin reunion. Yes, and it was me, some of the other voiceover people, and uh, and the animators. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, uh, John Musker and Ron Clements and uh, the directors and uh, Eric Goldberg, the anima- one of the animators. A lot of those folks. Yes, that was that was a nice occasion. And because you're a you wrote a book about Disney films. Yes, and another on the history of animated cartoons. Now, now, most importantly. Can you review the parrot in Aladdin? <laughs> Was it his best work, Leonard? Uh, Gilbert, that's a hell of a parrot. <laughs> Looked great on the big screen. It was. It was a very colorful parrot. It sure was. No, I, well, that's a film I like very much, and, and I'm not alone. Yeah. And speaking of cartoons, Leonard, you you grew up. You said you grew up here, and you watched what we watched. You watched Channel uh, Channel Eleven, watching cartoons, Laurel and Hardy, the Stooges. 
I had the I had the unforgettable once in a lifetime experience when I was thirteen. It was either twelve or thirteen years old of going with a friend who was very friendly with him at the time to Chuck McCann's. Uh, one of his live shows one day, his daily show on WNEW at the time, and standing there and watched him do Little Orphan Annie and Dick Tracy and all oh, that Oh, cool. Stuff. I never laughed so hard in my life. I never laughed so hard in my life. We love Chuck. And the idea that years later I would become friendly with Chuck, who I see all the time, uh, is just mind-blowing. Sweet guy. And, and you are you are a big fan of the Warner Brothers cartoons. Oh yes, absolutely. And again, I mean, I've been I've just been so you know timing as they say timing is everything. I've been so lucky to meet so many of my heroes. Uh, I mean, people who really helped. Well, in the case of those cartoons, I mean, shaped my sense of humor, shaped my my outlook on life, my sensibilities, not just entertain me, in addition to entertaining me. Uh, you know, I, to, to be able to spend time with all those people, I met Mel Blanc, uh, you know. Oh, wow. Just, you know, and Chuck Jones and Frizz Freeling and uh, Bob Clampett and so many of the people who made those great cartoons. Uh, it's, it, I've been so, so lucky. And and you said as a kid, because I remember the same reaction of watching the cartoons and saying, oh, Bugs Bunny acts different and looks different and Daffy Duck uh, looks different in this. Well, that was so, just it, is that there was no place to read about that stuff. Uh, the, you know, I, I was a precocious reader as a kid. And I lived, uh, I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, and I lived within walking distance of the, the public library. And I spent an awful lot of time there. Uh, and there were, there, I mean, there was one book on Walt Disney, one, uh, a good one by Bob Thomas called The Art of Animation. Uh, but there was nothing written about anybody else. And there was no place to read anything about who made these cartoons, when did they make them, why, you know, did they change in certain ways? Uh, all of that. And it was only in the 70s that some fanzines, as we used to call them, amateur magazines, started coming along and interviewing some of these guys and starting to set the record straight. And that's when I was inspired to try to write something myself. And then I also started teaching a course on the history of animation at the New School in New York. I, I remember being freaked out as a kid. The By early Bugs Bunny with the extra, extra big buck teeth. Who talked like that? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and Elmer Fudd was this roly-poly guy oh, yes, yes. with a clown nose. Yes. I'm, all of these things evolved. All the characters evolved. Nobody was hatched fully formed yeah. uh, all at once. I think Bugs Bunny, they basically designed after Groucho Marx, the classic. In part. See, but that, was, but, but that was Chuck Jones' attitude toward Bugs Bunny. But some of the other writers and directors had a different outlook on Bugs Bunny. But that's what's so fascinating about those characters is they're, you know, you can, I, I used to do this in my class. I would show five or six cartoons, five or six Bugs Bunny cartoons, 
each by a different director. And he was clearly identifiably Bugs Bunny in each one of those cartoons, and yet he was slightly different in each of those cartoons. That's an amazing thing. Yeah. I guess you fall in love with the one from your childhood, you know, the one you know best, and mine was yeah. the Chuck Jones version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, how come they've, they've since then made a million remakes of the Warner Brothers cartoons, whether in feature films or on new series, and they always screw it up. When they I tr- guess, you know, well, first off, they, you know, they've got, they've got an awfully, they've got a tough act to follow, right? I mean, we're talking about trying to come up to a level of greatness. Yeah that those guys maintained for decades and that we've all got embedded in our brains. Oh yeah. You know, so, I mean, this is, this is very hard to compete with. And, and, and frankly, if we're going to talk candidly, even Chuck Jones in his later years couldn't do it. And, and, and I, I adore Chuck and I respect him no end, but even he had a hard time recreating the same, spirit and and pace and zip and pizzazz uh and Chris Freeling too and, and and frankly they were older men by that time and I think part of what made those cartoons so great is that in their heyday the guys who were making them were young they were young and full of beans and uh, uh very irreverent and they were kind of uh they were bucking the system you know they were they were you know, the, the the studio was kind of the the uh, the establishment, and they were the anti-establishment. Well, it's the old problem with comedy. I mean, you know, you can only be avant-garde for, for, for so long. Listen, I remember seeing the Three Stooges make a personal appearance at the Oritani Theater in Hackensack, New Jersey, when they were promoting the Three Stooges in orbit. Uh should I just stop there, or should I go on? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> what, what year is this, Leonard? That was the Joe Dorita era. Stage. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Talk about the early 60s. You said it without saying it. Yeah. And, and, I was, and I took a lot of heat from some of my friends and classmates for, you're going to do what? You're going to see what? Uh, I, 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 but I, I was kind of impervious to those taunts. Uh, I, I was going. So we're sitting there in a packed theater, and an off-stage voice who, within seconds, is recognizable as Mo, is announcing them. He says, and now, boys and girls, please welcome those three silly billies, the Three Stooges. And out they come wearing very garish outfits. And we all go nuts because it's the Three Stooges. Yeah. <laughs> but they're older. They're older men. And, of course, it's not Curly. We want it to be Curly. Yeah. Now, little do I, I mean, Curly is dead. Now, we don't, you know, this is not something that computes very easily to a kid. Yeah. That Curly is gone. Even Shemp is gone, for crying out loud. And poor Joe Dorita. Talk about tough acts to follow. Exactly. And so there's Joe, Curly Joe, as they call them, doing the best he can. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to come out and do one of their routines from, from 1936. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Uh, they they did a little shtick and you know and, and some silly stuff back and forth and a little bit of a, a patter and uh, it, it was it was just a, it was just neat to see them but at the same time it was a little disappointing 
because you, we held them on, on such, put them on such a pedestal, and and they couldn't they couldn't be those guys anymore. And also with the Stooges, like so many comedians, uh, you know, when they start slapping each other and punching each other, <laughs> you're going. Oh my yeah. God! It's old men hitting yeah. each yeah, other. Yeah, we talked about that. Oh, yeah. they shouldn't do that. That's so sad. Yeah, they can yes. get hurt. Yeah, pretty much. It's a young man's game when you're talking about that kind of comedy. I mean, there were some. There were some who, who managed to to survive it, uh, but uh, it's uh, it's tough. I'll tell you. On the other hand, <laughs> on the on the other hand, the first time I met Jerry Lewis. When I was a kid, I thought the sun rose and set on Jerry Lewis. Oh, yes. One of the first movies I remember seeing as a kid, I clearly remember seeing in a movie theater, was his first solo movie without Dean Martin, The Delicate Delinquent. Oh, yes. Which has a great, great opening. Great opening scene where uh, it's a serious opening scene. It's an alleyway, and there's going to be a rumble between two gangs of juvenile delinquents and the, the music is building and you're cutting back and forth and these two gangs who are looking very menacing and getting closer and closer to each other all of a sudden all of a sudden in the middle of this alleyway out from a doorway comes Jerry Lewis knocking over a, 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 a stack of garbage cans <laughs> The loudest garbage cans <laughs> in movie history, <laughs> completely disrupting their rumble. Of course, that's the Jerry I fell in love with, and uh, uh, God, that I just, I just idolized him. And many, many years later, uh, uh, we used to shoot interviews in a conference room at Entertainment Tonight, and uh, uh, and I, I saw on our call board that. Jerry was going to be there uh, doing a quick interview about something or other. And it was not my shoot and it was not my interview. But uh, I, I sort of snuck into the room while they were setting up and just went over and shook his hand and introduced myself. And he, he was very gracious and very nice. And we made small talk for a minute or so and then I excused myself. And that night, I'm not exaggerating, I started shaking that night. Uh, I, I had a physical reaction. Because, my God, I just met Jerry Lewis. It was, you know, it, it was overpowering almost. Well, a couple of years went by, and I had a chance to interview him backstage at uh, Bally's in Las Vegas after he had just done a performance with Sammy Davis Jr. They were doing a, uh, they were working together at the time as a double act. I mean, they each did their own act, and they did a little bit of stuff together. So I'm backstage with Jerry. And uh, a local camera crew in Vegas that we used, that he knew, uh, we did the interview, and he was very serious during. He was very nice to me, but, but during the interview, he was very serious. I think he felt he, he knew I was a film critic, and I think he wanted to be sort of the serious filmmaker Jerry Lewis during this interview. He didn't want to fool around. But at the end of it, the camera guy, who was a well-known guy around Vegas, did a lot, a lot of different work had uh, asked Jerry if he would do a greeting for a testimonial dinner that was coming up for Alan and Rossi. I know you recently interviewed Marty Allen. Oh, yeah. 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 This was going to be a testimonial for Alan and Rossi, and would Jerry do a little 
a, a little greeting. And he said, sure. So they set the camera, and, and my wife is with me, and there are a few other people in the dressing room. And Jerry addresses the camera and says, uh, I've been asked to say a few words uh, on this anniversary for uh, a, couple of, a couple of friends of mine who have been in show business a long time, Alan and Rossi. And I've been asked to sum up what, what I think about Alan and Rossi. And he just stares at the camera and stares and stares and stares. It gets funnier and funnier and funnier. <laughs> He's doing nothing. And then finally he starts falling asleep and, and, and snoring. And we're all, we're all covering our mouths, muffling our laughs so we don't ruin the, the, the take. You know? So funny. So funny. He could still do that. And, and I've, I saw him I, not, not one year. He can still do that. He can still do that. I, I introduced him one time at the, uh, this is years ago, there used to be an annual video dealers convention in Las Vegas. Uh, that's when there were video stores. You remember those, Grandma? Video oh, stores? God. Yes. Radio. Well, they used yeah. to have an annual convention. Video, and all these mom and pop video store owners, I mean, thousands of them would show up. And one year they gave Jerry their, uh, you know, whatever, Star of the Year award. So, uh, and of course, uh, Jerry did not attend the dinner beforehand because once you put on the tuxedo, you do not sit down. This is old school show business. So he, he was there, perfectly dressed, perfectly coiffed, standing in the wings with me. And I introduced him. Uh, they, they had a clip reel, which got a big, you know, big reaction. And then he goes out and he says, I want to thank you all for this wonderful honor. Uh, it's great to be here. I appreciate what you guys are doing, keeping my, my films alive on home video and selling them. And uh, congratulations to the distributor. They're doing a great job. He says, and you know, he says, when I say it's an honor, I, I, you know, I, I, I mean it because I've, I've had a lot of great honors in my life. I've performed before heads of state, I performed before uh, royalty uh, in Europe and in Asia. I've met five United States presidents, and he goes on like this, and he's going on, and he's going on, and it's like it's starting to get a little boring and a little kind of like he's, he's kind of self-absorbed and just going on, prattling about all of these you know, people that he's, he's entertained in his life. And just at the moment, just at the moment that you're saying, oh, get on with it, Jerry, he says, and yet, no matter where I go, anywhere in the world, all people really seem to want me to do is to say, waiting! <laughs> but, he, but he says this. He leans into the microphone and says this at like 10,000 decibels. Hilarious. Need I say, the whole place just fell apart. He absolutely pulverized that audience. Now, That's what, what he can do. What yeah. did you think, though, when he came back with hardly working and smorgasbord? Oh, smorgasbord. Well, oh, yeah. well, what can you say? You know, <clears throat> what can you say? It's, it's hard. You know, uh, I, uh, I love him. I'll always love him. 
I wish she hadn't made some of those movies. What can yeah. I say? Yeah. But I've also had that same exact feeling of I I'll I'll do jokes about Jerry Lewis, about him, you know, being too overly serious and self important <laughs> and stuff. But I when I met him a few times and every time I meet him, I'm a kid and I'm meeting Jerry Lewis. That's right. That's right. That's fun. Because he, he appeals to that in all of us, I think. He, you know, not, nothing, he always says he's a, he's a nine-year-old kid. That's his, you know, his persona. But I think he turns us into nine-year-old kids. Oh, yeah. And, and Gilbert does one of the best Sherry Lewis's in the business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I with the team with the bison with the owl, Mr. Floydelman. <laughs> There's a couple episodes of the podcast, Leonard, where you can get about 10, 10, 15 minutes of that in a stretch. Now, not to bring the room down, but since we're talking about Martin and Lewis, and you wrote a book about comedy teams, (laughs) you can see where I'm headed with this. What what would you consider the worst comedy team? Oh, that's not fair. Oh, not fair? (laughs) Oh, We were trying to lead you down a a Sammy Petrillo. Oh, no, they're not the worst at all. Really? Oh, no. Wow. One of my all-time favorite movies is Bela Lugosi meets the Brooklyn Gorilla. (laughs) William Bodine. I love that movie. It's it's a freakish film. It's it's so strange. It's almost beyond description, that movie. Because when you watch it. Almost beyond description. You go, he looks and sounds exactly like Jerry Lewis. But something is wrong. <laughs> and you knew that even when you were six. <laughs> Duke Mitchell and Sammy Petrillo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, how come that, like, for years there were comedy teams, and now there are no comedy teams? Well, I think because th- that era we're talking about was sort of a hangover from vaudeville. From vaudeville, and the last gasp of vaudeville was 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 not that moved into nightclubs of course the nightclub era in the 40s and 50s and uh and what they used to call the presentation houses the movie theaters that still had five six live acts especially in big cities like new york and and then that larry gelbart the late great comedy writer had one of my favorite quotes of all time he said when vaudeville died television is the box they buried it in wow and it's true. And so yeah. I grew up, as you guys did, watching the Ed Sullivan show and, and, uh, and the, the, you know, the Dean Martin show and the sure. Perry Como show and the Dinah Shore show yeah. and the Hollywood Palace and all of these, these shows that, that you know, were trotting out the, the last surviving vaudevillians and the people who came out of that era. There were so many comedy duos. I mean, in Allen and Rossi, there was Rowan and Martin. Oh, little, and, and uh, uh, Noonan and Marshall. Noonan and Marshall, you know? we just talked about, yeah. And, yeah. and, and yeah. a little later generation, Patchett and Tarsus. Mm-hmm. Remember them? Oh, Burns, yeah, and, Burns and Schreiber. Oh, yeah, I love Burns and Schreiber. And, oh, and yeah. what I remember about like shows like Ed Sullivan, it was like, you know, maybe as a kid you wanted to see the comedian or the rock group, and you were forced to experience other forms of showbiz. Well, exactly, you know, and, and that's what's missing today, you know, in, in this world of, of, of specialization and narrow casting and all that. Now, mind you, at the time, I don't think we appreciated that we had to sit to Roberta Peters doing an aria yeah. you know, from Puccini. Right. 
you know, in order to get to Senor Wednesday. Yeah, or Myron Cohen. Uh, Exactly, you know. uh, But we did. So at least you could say, well, I know what opera is. Yes. I may not like it, but I've heard it. And, uh, and the same with all of, you know, all the other kinds, not to mention the animal acts and the acrobats and the jugglers and, and whoever else. Or they would oh, have... Oh, and let, let, us, let us not forget Wayne and Schuster. Oh, Wayne and Schuster. Oh, my sure. God, that's sure. right. Yeah. Who I think made more appearances than anybody on the Ed Sullivan. And right? I, I remember they would sometimes have actors doing dramatic monologues. Yes, yes. The works, you name it. That really was vaudeville. But I'm, it's like you, you, you are better off uh, having seen all those other people. Yes. Now, as I say, we didn't always feel that way at the time. Well, you, we were impatient, you know, to get to the stuff we wanted to see. To get to the marquee but, chimps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but even you go back and you look at that Beatle, the, the Beatle episode, and I mean, you've got Frank Gorshin's on there. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, and Mitzi Gaynor and, Mitzi, and, her, Mi- and yes. dancing boys. Right? Oh, Mi- Mitzi McCall and Charlie Brill, I think, yes. are on oh, that yes. episode. Yes. And uh, uh, Jack Wilde, uh, was it Jack? Uh, Davy Jones and a, and a yep. live production of Oliver. Oh, yep. yeah. I mean, so, so much variety. And I have to get to... This is something, I don't know if it's all urban legend or what's true. I've always, you always hear that the little rascals always wound up, each one, a horrible end. No. No, that's, that's, uh, that's easy exploitation hype. And it comes up uh, at least once a year on one of the uh, tabloid-type shows. The Curse of the Little Rascals or something like that. And for every one of these unhappy stories, like Carl Schweitzer, Alfalfa, you know, who died by gunshot and who had a kind of a kind of a miserable life right, right from the start, he had a ter- came from a bad he had a bad family background, uh, you know, nothing good to say about about his 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 young life. Sorry to say, except that he was wonderful in those movies, uh, and he had a little bit of a career afterwards, but not not a lot. He turns up and it's a wonderful life. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Frank Capra used him and William Wellman used him right. several times. But, uh, but so he came to a sorry end. But, uh, you know, but the, the kid who played Buckweek, Billy Thomas, you know, he just got out of show business and had a normal life and, and lived to a decent age. And I heard, and Spank, you know, Spanky McFarland, who I got to know a little bit, uh, he tried to stay in show business, had, had his ups and downs. But he, he married a wonderful woman. They stayed married for many years. Uh, they were very happy. Uh, he had a bit of a revival, you know, in the, during the nostalgia wave of the 70s and used to tour college campuses and did lectures and did the nostalgia conventions. And uh, so, you know, he, he derived some latter-day satisfaction from being spanky uh, and made a few bucks at it, too. And uh, you know, there, there, uh, you know, Dickie Moore uh, is still alive. Still he's with not us, well yeah. right now, yeah. but he's uh, he's still alive. Uh, uh, you know, there there are a number of others who who you know who, who turned out okay. The Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast producer of the month for August is Kate Jones. Thank you, Kate. Be just like Kate and get rewarded for supporting our podcast. Head over to patreon.com slash 
Gilbert Gottfried. For a small amount each month, you can get some colossal benefits, such as access to new podcast episodes before anyone else, exclusive video hangouts, shout-outs from me on Twitter. I will even read something that you send me, and it'll sound just like this. Go to patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Gilbert Gottfried. We thank you for your generosity. Now, our mutual friend Drew Friedman, Leonard, Mm -hmm. wanted said, uh, you've got to ask Leonard, and this was news to me, there were apparently fake little rascals. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Gilbert and I I were endlessly amused by the thought of a fake buckwheat. I have a a bulging clipping file uh, of, of people who could... What would usually start with convincing a local reporter, and, 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 and this is, you know this is when newspapers were a little more active and vital than they are today, and before the internet. But they'd convince somebody, be it a local reporter, be it somebody at a nursing home, be it you know a family member who then reported upon their death that they were the original stinky <laughs> in the little rascal. <laughs> Or this was, my uncle was the original Freckles in, in the R Gang comedy. And, and uh, I can't tell you how many freckles. phone calls I fielded over the years from the New York Post and from the Associated Press and, and all sorts of people asking if this was true. And, of course, if you would say no, I mean, the reporter was happy to accept the no, but sometimes the people or the families weren't. And the weirdest thing I ever had happen was I helped host a nostalgia convention in the, let's see, about 1980 in, in New York at the old Commodore Hotel, now long gone, uh, on 42nd Street near Grand Central. I remember the Commodore. They had early Comic-Cons there. That's right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, they had a lot of conventions there. Clayton Moore was at that convention. And Spanky was at that convention. So I was interviewing Spanky on stage, and as I'm interviewing him, in the middle, and they, they have a pretty good turnout, and in the middle of the, the conversation, a guy walks up the aisle and calls out, Hey, Spanky! Now, I can't remember what he said at the time, but he said, Hey, Spanky, it's Freckles, remember me? <laughs> <laughs> and Spanky, who'd been through this before, said, Hey, how you doing? And that seemed to satisfy the guy, and he didn't interrupt any further. You know, it was some, some guy. <laughs> the, the worst, though, was that one night on ABC 2020, they actually did a profile of a guy in Phoenix, Arizona, who was bagging groceries at a local supermarket who said he was buckwheat. And how this got on a national news television show. <laughs> Incredible. I'll never know. And in fact, somebody got fired over this. And rightly so, because uh, there's some reason to believe that, that before it went on the air, someone found out that it wasn't true, and they ran with the story anyway. And he, he was not. And the thing about the Rascals is that uh, by this time, by the time Dick Bann and I wrote our book on the Little Rascals, it was 
we identified the actual names of every single member of that troupe over the years, from the silent movie era right to the end of the 1940s. So there's no question who Darla Hood was. It was a young woman named Darla Hood. So the fact that 17 different people said I was the original Darla, sorry, yeah, you're wrong. There's only one, and her name was Darla Hood. Or that I was the original Buckwheat. No, Buckwheat's name was William Thomas, Billy Thomas. He's the only guy who was ever Buckwheat. So it, it, it was not hard to, to prove these things, and yet people were all too willing to accept. Because, again, what you just said, Frank, early on, and Delbert, who would do that? Who would pretend to be a little rascal? <laughs> yeah, that's perversely funny. I mean, I remember a story about somebody impersonating Dennis DeYoung, who was the singer in the band Styx. I can mm-hmm. see trying to be a, pretending to be a rock star, yeah. but, but pretending see, to be buckwheat is bizarre. See, it's, it's, right, or, 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 a, or a descendant of, of Alexander Hamilton oh, or yeah. Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've done that. <laughs> now, you wrote about the Island of Lost Souls. Yeah. I remember. And it's like, because I just recommended. We that do a mini film. episode yeah. on Thursdays now, Leonard, where we just, we just dust off films that we like. Oh, well, uh, the, the, the newest uh, uh, DVD release from Criterion is so fantastic. The quality of the picture, it's never looked this good. They pieced together this print from uh, uh, like four different sources, and it's more complete than it's ever been. And it looks breathtakingly beautiful, and it's such a creepy movie. What a creepy film! It it's so funny, and every attempt to remake it, most famously the Brando one, yeah, ah, uh, has failed so miserably. And that is like it is a nightmarish film. Oh yes, yeah, it's a spooky Absolutely. film. Absolutely. I mean, once once you see it, you'll never forget it. And it was photographed by one of the greatest cameramen in the history of Hollywood, a man named Carl Struess, who was a master of lighting. And there's a scene with uh, Charles Lawton where, where it's almost completely dark. And all you see is uh, uh, Lawton lighting a cigarette, and the, the tip of the cigarette just barely illuminates his face, ever so slightly. Oh, it's just, it's, it's incredible. And all the views of the monsters are very quick. Yes. And it's like, it's not like later on. It was like, hey, look at the great makeup we have. Well, the Burt Lancaster one's not very good either. No, that one, I remember the ads. Michael York in that, I think. The ads for the Burt Lancaster one were just a poster showing all of the monsters. Right. And the brand. You know, know, Marion C. Cooper, the, 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 the genius behind King Kong. Uh, said he he always subscribed to the theory he called the three D's when it came to a a monster or something like King Kong. I I think I'm getting this right. Keep it dark, distant, and dangerous. In other words, don't reveal. Don't show it in close-up. Don't dwell on it. Keep it as mysterious and as obscure as you can, and that maintains that aura, that mystique. Well, like what was famous and what was ultimately successful about Jaws. I was just going to say the same thing, the first Jaws. The shark didn't work, and it looked goofy on screen. So Spielberg was forced to make the ocean the villain. 
And it was like there was something underneath the ocean. Keep him off screen. Yeah, and that's right. what scared and it's the anticipation. You. It's the anticipation that, that, that builds the suspense and that makes it so compelling and so, so exciting. Speaking of the Rascals, Leonard, we have to ask you about a, a favorite of Gilbert's and mine. That I, and and forgive me if I don't have my facts right. The kid from Borneo was taken yes. was taken out of circulation. Yeah. Yum yum, eat him up. Was that what was that one that was edited heavily or taken out of circulation? Well, what only happened to come was back? The, the, the 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 company that owned the the distribution, the TV rights to the package of the Little Rascals. Uh, you know, and, and you know, it was in circulation for years. We all grew up watching them every day uh, on television. And then uh, uh, in the, I think it was in the 70s, uh, you know, that either, either, sti- either s- stimulated by some complaints or maybe by uh, just wanting to uh, uh, dodge some possible complaints, from viewers or from or from TV stations who might not want to renew the their rights to the package, they decided to edit the films. They pulled, I think, about a half dozen titles out of the package completely, including the Kid from Borneo, and also the one with Step and Fetch it in it. Oh yeah, you know, uh, and so they took some of them out completely because they felt they were just too. And then others, they edited. They cut scenes, they cut lines of dialogue, and they didn't do it gracefully. They, were, they, they used a meat cleaver. They, they, they it was you know, not, not, not done with any kind of uh, subtlety. And uh, this, was, I mean, this was a well-meaning attempt to keep the films alive without showing something that could be offensive. And let's face it, some of that stuff you know, is, I mean, if anything is politically incorrect, it's some of that material. Oh, it's of its time. It, it, it's you know, but it's but the the difference here is that it's being shown to kids, right? So I understand it. I understand the the the, the motivation behind it, and I understand why they wanted to do that. And uh, but then later on in later years, when people wanted to do stuff with the the films, and try to put them in the right context. And show them in a proper way, and and you know present them responsibly and explain what was going on and you know and and, and warn parents and all of that. They still didn't want to want to let them go. They just still didn't want them to be shown. So it's it's remained a hot potato ever since. I see. I tell you, the kid from Borneo, when you're a kid, is the, one of the strangest things you've ever seen in your life. Very weird. And don't th- doesn't he end up getting shot in the ass with a Roman candle? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the ending of it. What subtle they weren't? Yeah. Say say yeah. that again, Leonard. But of we... course, yeah, well, listen, I said subtle they weren't. Subtle they weren't. Yeah. <laughs> but you know the thing is, I, I, I want uh, this is this is may seem out of context, but I hope it isn't. Uh, uh, years ago, uh, when I was talking to Chuck Jones, the, the, the great animator and cartoon director, uh, he used to take some heat at one time over the violence or in the Roadrunner cartoon. And CBS used to run the Warner Brothers cartoons on Saturday mornings for like 20 years. You know, they were hugely popular. But they started editing them. They editing they, they would cut out all gunshots. They would cut out all explosions. Uh, anything that was seen to be violent. 
And Chuck Jones used to say when people would say, you know, what do you think about the accusations of violence in your cartoons? He he turned to someone like me. He said, well, you grew up watching them. Did you turn out to be an axe murderer? <laughs> you know, right? And and of course, you know, the answer was no. Uh, I, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, the, the apocryphal story when I was growing up was always, uh, I grew up watching the, the uh, Adventures of Superman with George Reeves. Oh, yeah. and that yeah. every kid, yeah. Every kid was told the same thing. You know, some kid put a blanket over his, over his shoulders and jumped off a roof because he thought he could fly like Superman. Yep. My mom told me that. You know, well, you, you know, you, you cannot protect everybody from everything and you cannot protect people who are uh who don't get it or who are perhaps uh you know mentally impaired uh you know from from taking the wrong message from something that has uh no no intention of sending a wrong message well it's just like when they accuse uh, models and actresses like well this is the reason there's anorexia and Girls are starving themselves because of you, and you figure, no, that's that's a disorder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, now, before well, we're we... totally going down a fun path of conversation yeah. here. <laughs> well, now we get to what I we have... need a Hen- we need a Henny Youngman sug- segue here. Yeah, <laughs> or, or Artie Johnson falling off a tricycle. Yeah. Sound of fright. Now, okay, well, that, that, that leads me into my next thing. Because uh, there has to be a Milton Berle reference in each of my podcasts. Oh, certainly. Did you ever see Milton Berle's dick? <laughs> no. There's a more interesting path, Leonard. No, but I did have the pleasure and honor of being on a dais yes. for a friar's dinner out here in Los Angeles. Honoring Hal Roach. Oh, great! And Milton was the Toastmaster. Yes. And I was one of the. I was very flattered to be one of the guest speakers. And uh, uh, it was it was quite a night. I mean, you know, I, this is this is something you do all the time, Gilbert. But it was a, a real novelty. In fact, a, a unique situation for me. I got called by a guy one day. Uh, at Entertainment Tonight, asking if I'd be willing to to participate, I said absolutely. I said, "Who else have you got on the panel?" And he said, uh, "I think we have uh, uh, Ricky Lane and Velville." Oh, they, and, <laughs> they uh, just came up on the show. And and, and and he and he named some other people. I said, "Well, do you have anybody who has anything to do with Hal Roach?" He said, "Like who?" I said, "Like Jackie Cooper, maybe." He said, "Oh, that's a great idea." <laughs> So he booked. So he booked Jackie Cooper, who of course had been in our gang, of course, and who was happy to come in and be part of the evening. And they got a few other people like that too. So, so it was a wild, wild night. And uh, Milton was using uh, uh, file cards at the time as his kind of you know close-up cue cards, and uh, and he was great. He was just great, and. One of the highest compliments I ever had, I think, was I had a few notes on cards, and I made I I'm, I was not there to be a comedian. I certainly wasn't going to compete with professional comics. Uh, although I did say that the dais looked a little like the green room for the Joe Franklin show, <laughs> which you were once on. But uh, 
at one point I said something or other, and Milton reached up and took my file card. Like he was going to save it and use it for another time. That is flattering. <laughs> but you're, he, you're... He, was, he was just great. He was great. Years ago, Steve Allen wrote a great book back in the 50s called The Funny Men, which is still a, a wonderful book about comedy and comedians. And he said nobody could ever beat Milton in a, in a cutting contest because while comedian A would be trying to think of something funny to say, Milton would be remembering something funny he already said 20 years ago. And it was true. One night, my dad was visiting from, from New Jersey, and my, my dad's brother, my late, late uncle, uh, who died when I was just, a, just a, an infant, had been a uh, pianist and songwriter who'd had some modest success, never big, big success, but, but he, he had some songs that got performed by some, some fairly famous people, and he wrote a song with Milton Berle in the 1930s. So one night while my dad was visiting, I was going to do pledge breaks for the local PBS station here in Los Angeles, and I knew that Milton was also going to be on that night. So I brought my dad along because I thought he'd enjoy meeting Milton. And Milton, who, who, who had a steel trap mind and remembered everything and everybody, gave me a big hello and was very friendly to my dad. And my father said, you won't remember this, but many, many years ago, he wrote a song with my brother. Uh, with my brother. He said, what was your brother's name? He said, Bernard Malton. And without, in a nanosecond, Milton said, Bernie? <laughs> This is like this is like a, a forty set a forty year flashback, in a nanosecond. Yeah, he had he was he supposedly had a steel trap mind. Unbelievable! I said to I met him one one time, and I had just done a story on ET about the movie Sun Valley Serenade, which had just come out on video, uh, an old musical with Sonia Henney and John Payne and Glenn Miller and his orchestra, and and Milton, among others. And, uh, and I said, hey, Milton, I just did a story about Sun Valley Serenade. He said, you know, I'm the only one still alive. I'm the only one left from that movie. Uh, he said, they're all gone. Glenn Miller, Sonia Henney, John Payne. I said, well, the Nicholas Brothers. He said, featured act. Featured act. I'm talking about leading players. <laughs> I love that. Now, you also... Uh, uh, became friends with or were a fan of someone who we love here. Oh, uh, you still there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You also, uh, I'm I'm a, a big fan. I only unfortunately got to visit him twice, and that's Forey Ackerman. From oh, well, I grew up on Forey Ackerman, like, like everybody my generation. Famous monsters of film. Oh, yeah, Ackerman. I went down to my local candy store on the corner where I bought my comic books and, uh, and, and eagerly awaited each new issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland. Oh, I doted on that, absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't wait, couldn't get enough of it. And when I moved out here, I did get to meet him on a couple of occasions. I went to visit the Acker Mansion. Oh yes, I was and there. Saw a lot of his wonderful memorabilia, and uh, I, I can't say I was a, a friend of his or, or friendly with him, but uh, he was very nice to me, and I got to meet him at least, and that was really fun. 
Leonard, tell us about, I was listening to an interview with you online, and you, you met a lot of people when you first went to L.A. and were doing interviews. You met a lot of people that had worked, with, worked in silence. I mean, you interviewed Grady Sutton and Joan Blondell and Ralph Bellamy and Ruben Mamoulian. Well, Mamoulian I saw in New York City. Oh, is that New York? Mamoulian was the first director I ever saw in person. Uh, in the, um, in the, six, the late 60s, uh, a, a, a notorious character named Raymond Rohauer, ran the film program at the Huntington Hartford Museum. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know that place. And, uh, and uh, Rohauer has uh, a, a tarnished and justifiably tarnished reputation because although he did, some do, did do some good things, he, he, he restored the films of Buster Keaton and put them back in circulation. And he did, that's probably his greatest uh, claim to fame. But he also bullied a lot of people and claimed to have rights that he didn't really have. But he put on some wonderful shows at that museum. And he brought in Groucho Marx, and that's how I got to meet Groucho. He brought in Ginger Rogers. He brought in all sorts of wonderful people. Hal Roach did a long, long tribute to Hal Roach one summer. So some great shows that I'll never forget. But the first person he brought in that was a director was Ruben Mamoulian. And at the time, I was a kid, and, you know, all I thought about were the, the performers, you know, uh, the actors, the comedians. That's who I was interested in. I'd never heard a director speak before about his work and, and, and talk about what went into it and the decisions and the creative choices and all of that. And Mamoulian was an extremely eloquent, gracious uh, fellow, uh, fascinating to listen to. And, and I just kept going back day after day to hear him because he was so fascinating. So it was, it was a, 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 a sort of a life-changing experience for me. Directed so I, the, I, I owe a lot to that experience. He directed the Jekyll and Hyde picture, right, with and, Frederick with, March. With, with, with Frederick March, and, yes. And that and directed, was, that that was the movie where everybody wondered about the transformation scene, how he achieved that. Yeah. And I'm not the one who can tell you because I don't remember. <laughs> now, tell us a little about Groucho. Oh, I, I just had a brief... Well, I'll tell you what. There was a tribute to him at that museum. And they were, I, I was lucky enough to be invited to opening night. And they had uh, a... Uh, on the top floor, they had a uh, uh, cocktail lounge, a reception area. And that's where Groucho was going to be after the program itself. So I was there with my best friend, and I brought my copy of the Groucho Letters, which had just been published, a hardcover book a collection of I his had that, oh, yeah. sure, yeah. So, and I, what I wanted was that I wanted to get his autograph. And I noticed off to the side, Cindy Adams was there with the TV crew from Channel 7. So the elevator was right in the middle of the room. I said to my friend, look, Here's the elevator. There's the TV crew. He's got to walk this path. If we just stay on this path, we can't miss him. So that's where we planted ourselves. And he was there with his brother, Zeppo. Wow. Well, they walked right by us, and we didn't recognize them because they were these two little old men. We got them on the way back. Wow. And he did sign my book. But, but that was another instance of uh, a clash of reality 
versus you know what what you what you have in your your head. Sure. Although that night when Rohar was introducing him, and Rohar was not a great public speaker, uh, he was kind of thumpering and saying, and and and, and we're, we're here to, to to pay tribute to a a, a, a very special uh, committee. Uh, Groucho pushed his way on stage, shoved Raymond away from the microphone. So that's enough of that. <laughs> you know. Now got for- a big laugh. Got a big laugh and and asserted himself as Groucho. Now, Frank and I were talking before. You have a story about Eddie Murphy and Ralph Bellamy. Oh, this is this is a third hand. It's not yeah. an original okay. story. I'll I'll tell it. But but uh, when when Eddie Murphy made uh, Trading Places, they were on location, I think, in Philadelphia, if I'm remembering correctly. That sounds right. And the two co-stars were, of course, the two great movie veterans, Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici. Amici hadn't been working at that time for quite a while. He later had a, his career got a, a second wind in the later years of his life. Well, uh, Bellamy was a very talkative, garrulous guy, very sweet man. And he's chattering with uh, the makeup uh, trailer with... Uh, with Don Amici, he says, Don, he says, uh, how many, uh, how many pictures you figure you've made? And he says, well, he says, I think I've made about, uh, 49 or 50. And, uh, Bellamy says, uh, I've been counting. He says, I believe I've made 99 films altogether. And Eddie Murphy over here says, hey, he says, between us, we've made 150 movies. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you know what's interesting about those two names, uh, Leonard, is both of them, Amici and Bellamy, became kind of expressions. Because Amici, my mom said people used to refer to the Amici as the telephone. Hand me the Amici. Hand me the Amici. Oh, yes. Because he played Alexander <laughs> Grimm. And of, course yep. the, and, of course, the Bellamy is the guy that doesn't get the girl. Yes. Now, now, Gilbert loves Casablanca. Uh, oh, that's my all-time favorite movie. Uh, I, we've talked about I know it is. And we've talked about it on the show, and he does, he does little bits from the movie. I, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's one of those pictures where... Would you... I ha- as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm looking at a little sampler pillow that I purchased at the Warner Brothers store, uh-huh. which I'm still in mourning over th- that they closed 15 years ago. I was their best customer. I remember that store. They made this sampler pillow, and it has my all-time favorite line of dialogue. I was misinformed. Oh, because Bogart came there for the waters. Right. And I, I heard in Casablanca, a lot of, like, in the tiniest parts, like extra parts or one line or, or the Nazis hanging out in the casino... Uh, it was these European Jewish actors who were old stars in their country before they had to leave. Well, they weren't all stars, but they were all emigres, and and you you couldn't have you couldn't have invented those faces. These were all refugees and emigres who had fled from you know from the Nazis and wound up in Los Angeles. So if you wanted to cast a, a, a room full of people who looked like refugees, 
You didn't have to put makeup on them. There they were. And it's one of the things I love about the film is that uh, everyone who everyone who speaks, even one line of there, there's no one in that film who isn't colorful, and interesting, from the tiniest part to the you know to the, to the leading roles. Uh, it's so perfectly cast so perfect. all the way up and down the and line. And wasn't that one of those films that while they were making it, they thought, "Uh oh, we're in trouble," because they kept changing the script. Each yeah, day. well, it was you know it's been it's been pretty well documented now that that the, they they kept uh, uh, rewriting and tampering and tinkering, and had they been able to, they would have changed the ending. Uh, because by the time it was coming out, they were making it. Uh, remember, we only entered the war after uh, Pearl Harbor at the very end of 1941, and they were making this movie in 1942. So Hollywood was wasn't yet, you know, fully geared up for wartime propaganda. They were they were trying to get on that bandwagon as quickly as they could. And they they seriously thought about having a closing shot of Bogart and Claude Rains uh in uniform on a troop transport ship to show that ultimately they went to fight for the cause. But by that time, Claude Rains uh, had gone home to his farm in Pennsylvania, and uh, it was very hard to get, uh, uh, you know, transportation in those days. Uh, everything was on a priority basis, and uh, train travel was very difficult. Plane travel was even worse, and it just the logistics didn't work, or they decided it wasn't worth the time and effort and money to do it, and they ultimately left it alone. Thank goodness. And yeah, there was also film. the great... And they also wanted to call Ingrid Bergman back for for another for some possible retakes, but she was making For Whom the Bell Tolls, and she cut off her hair. If you remember For Whom the Bell Tolls, she has a, a very severe boyish hair, haircut. And, and I remember that there's that great scene where the Germans are singing one of their songs right. very proudly, and then Bogart nods his head to the French, right. and they start drowning them out with the French uh, with national the anthem. With the Marseillaise, yeah. And I heard that the crying in that scene was real because the war was starting, and no one really knew how it was going to end. And they, well, that's why I say the emotions on the faces of all of those those people, all those all those European emigres. Uh, you know, a lot of that was not acting. I mean, some of it was was acting from from a very real place. You know, uh, you know, in their hearts, uh, and some of it wasn't acting at all. They were just responding to the situation. That's why that's why the film is unique. That's why it really is one of a kind. It's... Even Warner Brothers couldn't make it happen again. You know, they they tried reteaming. They did Passage to Marseille. They oh, did yes. all these other films trying to recapture the spirit of Casablanca. In the old days, as opposed to today, they didn't do sequels very often. What they did was clones, which is, you know, a slightly different approach. Instead of making Casablanca 2, they made Passage to Marseille, which also took place in Europe, it was also during the war. It also had Peter Laurie. 
you know, they would, they would take as many of the same ingredients as they could and try to fashion something new that, that resembled the original as closely as possible. But it wasn't, okay. it wasn't, it wasn't, even then it wasn't easy to do. And it almost happened with Ronald Reagan. Yes. No, that's baloney. Oh, really? That's, 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 a, that's a myth. That's absolute baloney. That's good now, stuff. Now, Leonard, this, this is, I hate wrapping up this show because we have, like, loads of things. Probably ten cards we, we wanna, didn't get to. Uh, that we haven't, we haven't scratched the surface with you. So you're going to have to come back whether you want to or not. <laughs> I'll, do th- I'll do that if you will let me do my two plugs. Oh, yeah, do them now. Go right ahead. Tell us. Well, my website is leonardmalton.com, and that's where I review current movies, but I also write about things that interest me and film festivals I attend and revivals, and it's where when somebody I, uh, I care about, like the same people you care about, passes away, I try to do a tribute or a memorial uh, and and we keep a lot of we have a huge huge backlog in archives. So that's LeonardMalton.com. The other is my podcast. Yeah, with, with which Baron. is called Malton on Movies. Right. Uh, with uh, my partner Baron Vaughn. I know Baron. Funny and, guy. Uh, we're on uh, the Wolf Pop Network and we're on iTunes. And give us a try. I've seen the show. It's great. Thank you. So once again, I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And we've been talking to uh, a writer, critic, all-around expert on movies, Leonard Moulton. And I just want to throw in one more thing, Leonard. I am heartbroken, as, I are, as I'm sure many fans are, that you are no longer going to be publishing the essential uh, indispensable movie guide, which saddens well, me deeply. Thank you, Frank. You know, it, it, it's uh, it's a big change in my life. I've been doing it since I was 18 years old. We had a 45 year run with that with that book, which is just extraordinary. So I, I it's cannot, been a Bible. I cannot complain. So many people have said so many nice things to me, and of course, the book still is there, still stands. Uh, uh, but what we are doing, I'm happy to tell you, is a new edition of my classic movie guide. Good. Which oh. will be out in late September, which we've added 300 more old movies to and made a lot of corrections and additions and changes. And uh, I'm very proud of it, and that will be out September 29th. Good news. Okay. Good news. Th- Thank thanks for you doing again, it. Leonard Moll. Come back and talk movies, just movies with us. Anytime you say. Thank, Thank you, buddy. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Get the new Foscam C1 indoor Wi-Fi security camera because it's a reliable solution for indoor surveillance of your home or office. To learn more, go to www.foscam.us c1 where you'll be directed to our Amazon page. And for a limited time, use the code GILCAST, that's G-I-L-C-A-S-T-1, to get $10 off, if you love that too, yes. per camera. Again, the website is Foscam, F-O-S-C-A-M dot U-S slash the letter C, and the number one. Watch what you love anywhere. If you like listening to comedy, try watching it on the internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleichinger, Slicing job. I've been friends with her for 10 years. One of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, 
takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore because it's here and it's funny and I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.